All right, everybody, we are going to jump back in. And in fact, this will be great for the last two points on this sheet because it'll, it'll relate to what we were just talking about. So if you, if you have the uh, nine mark sheet, we're going to go to the very end of it now. The back of the sheet points eight and nine. <clears throat> A concern for biblical discipleship and growth. And uh, yes, yeah, so j- just uh, w- with the question we were just talking about, uh, we, we do not believe that you've got to, to uh, have a transformation and cleaning up of your life before you meet Jesus or to get ready to meet Jesus. It's like the prodigal son. He comes stinking with all uh, of the smell of the pigs when he comes back to his father. He has not showered. He has not cleaned up. He's sim- symbolizing his whole sin is all there. He just comes and throws himself before his father. And his father says, quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put sandals on his feet. You know, we're going to have the fattened calf killed. So all, all that happens is the Lord regenerates the heart. We, re, we repent and believe, and the transformation follows our forgiveness. It comes after we are justified or declared righteous before God. And so a biblical understanding of discipleship and growth is that, first of all, the discipleship and growth has to all happen after conversion. Conversion mm-hmm. comes first, and then discipleship and growth is going to immediately follow after that. And um, just, Jerry, you've, you've talked about how discipleship is obviously a passion for for us as a church, but what, what, is, what is discipleship? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, where Mark's saying no one's righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So that's their, before conversion, before they're regenerate, that's who they are. And so we couldn't expect them to clean or act up, right? And, we, and, and certainly wouldn't even ask that. That's not a prerequisite. That is something, though, that once one is regenerate, once they have gone from dead to alive, from where they were uh, dead in their transgressions and sins, now they're alive in Christ, then the book of Romans and all over Scripture will say they are going to grow. And if they're not, then we have to kind of go back to the drawing board and to say, well, is that truly a conversion? And what our job is and what our joy is and what I think we want to do more than anything else, even six and a half years when we plant a church, is to disciple folks to grow because there's multiplication in that because is um you know if i'm thinking zach as zach has begun to grow he wants to pour into those guys on thursday morning um wants to love his wife as christ loves the church wants to model christ at at work and wants to become a disciple of other folks and so we just see discipleship as a huge great joy um, and every bit as important as evangelism. Not that we're just adding, we, huge, evangelism's huge, but discipleship is a multiplication, really, uh, where we want to disciple folks so that they are, in turn, able to disciple someone else. Well, and it's helpful, too, when we think of discipleship. Um, we, we talk about sanctification as something that's progressive, meaning we grow in it over time. Um, and so think about when we're converted, it's really, this is just, a, I think, a helpful analogy. It's like a seed is planted. Um, and that seed, through the local church, through fellowship, through Bible reading, through prayer, that seed is watered, it's nurtured, um, and over time you start to see the evidence of that life that was there. And, you know, there are certain key things that we look for, but everybody's life is a little different. We all have different backgrounds, different personalities, um, you know, in, in the way this works. Like for me personally, you know, I, I was saved in a kind of, you know, scare you out of hell into heaven kind of thing. Um, but I really believe I was genuinely converted because I knew I needed Jesus. Um, and I said, Lord, please save me. Um, I, I believe that's when I was really awakened to my need of Christ. 
And then, you know, that was right before I graduated high school. I go off to college at UGA the next year. Not exactly the most conducive environment for, uh, for growing in Christ in terms of the university itself. And I had a whole host of things that God, God had planned for me in terms of rewiring how I think about like the universe, you know, creation versus evolution, um, and, and just a whole host of things um, that at the beginning I had no idea that that's what I was going to have to start working through. Um, and had somebody told me that, well, you got to get all this right first, there's no way. Like it was just, I knew I needed Jesus and following Jesus and uh, started following him. And then as I was walking with him, it just thing after thing started coming. Um, and, you know, God had the right people in my life to keep pointing me in the right direction. Um, and so discipleship, it, it's like, I mean, the scripture is filled with, the, the imagery of vines and things growing, it's agricultural, it's not industrial like what we're used to. Um, and so, you know, you, again, you, you know a tree is, is growing because over time it grows, um, but it doesn't grow all at once. I mean, you can't yell at a seed and, you know, be mad if it doesn't produce fruit. It's not ready to yet. Um, and so it's like, like you were saying, like we, we, we get converted, we, we start trusting Jesus and commit to follow him. And then in his time, through others, through the word, by the spirit, the growth starts to happen. And, and that's discipleship is we're helping other people follow Jesus better. I mean, literally, if you want to boil it down, something ridiculously simple, when we're discipling someone, I'm helping that person or they're helping me to follow Jesus better. Um, and it's something we're all growing in. We never, we never get perfect in it. We, we stumble forward like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's trends upward, but it's one of those you got some down and then up. But over the long period of time, you start to see you started here. Now you're up here. Um, and you touched on it. We're never, it's never over. Like, oh, man, oh, man, I feel like these guys disciple me. I need their discipleship. I need those guys to come over and help me up in the morning to, to disciple me. It's it's. I needed as much as that day when I came to know the Lord Jesus a half century ago. Is I need to grow. I need to increase in, in holiness. I need to confess all the sin that I'm so sick and tired of but still dealing with. And, um, and so that doesn't ever, that doesn't ever end and, and would never want it to be this thing where, well, the elders are just there to disciple. No, we need a Paul. We need a Barnabas who will be, you know, similar to us where we can be an encouragement. We need Timothys that we're pouring our life into. But we need all three of those different levels, if you will, of, of folks to look to. Yeah, I mean, I would just say it's, 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 this is the joyful thing. Like, you come to faith in Christ, everything changes in your life. And what you want to do is you want to talk about Jesus. And you want, I want to honor Jesus with my life. He has literally saved my life, intervened in my life, helped me honor the Lord Jesus. So, so you want to have the people that are wiser. So, so thankful that we had our dad that I could go to. There would be a question I'd have and I would say, okay, I got to talk to my dad about this. Like, is this true? I'd hear a sermon. Is this biblical? And I'd go to my dad and just say, what this is. So you have somebody pouring into, but then you, you want to share that with other people around you. I mean, I've been in my book club for years now. And even this past Monday or the Monday before, we had a, a huge group of guys in there. Zach was there. And it was just like, the time goes by so fast because you're talking about the Bible. You're talking about uh, honoring him and trying to live a respectable sins we're dealing with. And it's just like, this is the thing you want to do. Uh, I mean, when you, it's sort of like a baseball player or something. They want help in hitting the ball and they're going to go to all these people, help me, help me get better. How much more Jesus? We want to honor him. And so this is, we get to do this. Like this should be the thing that we want to do and want to talk about person to work of Jesus. And the local church is the best place for this to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Moving to the last of the nine marks, biblical church leadership. 
Until recent times, almost all Protestants agreed that in church government, there should be a plurality of elders, which means that there should be an office of elder and not merely one or more pastors uh, in positions of leadership. This is a biblical and practical model that has fallen out of favor in modern times. If that sounds confusing, here's all we're trying to say. In the New Testament, there is no exception to this that I've ever found. I don't think there is an exception. Every time a church refers to its leadership, it refers to them in the elders with the plural. And never once in the New Testament do you have a single elder who leads a church. Uh, Titus chapter 1, Paul says, uh, you know, go, go appoint elders in every town, which means each church has multiple elders. Acts 14, they appointed elders in every church. So elders, plural, in every church, singular. In Acts chapter 20, Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders, plural. He doesn't speak to one person, he speaks to a group. So every time we see it in the New Testament, it's assumed that churches will have a plurality of elders. So we have four elders at our church. And this is good for a whole bunch of reasons. Mm. First of all, I would hate to not have it. (laughs) It just would be a nightmare to not have plurality of elders. I mean, good night. But Jerry, what are some reasons why in God's wisdom he he has plurality of elders in the New Testament? Oh, yeah. I just think you know, certainly, and somebody we're talking about hobby horses. We can, if if it was just up to any of the four of us, there's just so many areas that we're not strong at, and so if there can be a blend of giftedness to uh, be able to be the pastors that we need, if one of us is the pastor and kind of calling the shots, then there's all of these weaknesses. There's all of these areas. That we're going to miss and so this is the by god's sovereignty it's this blend of gifts and i just say i know it's not an answer to your question there mark exactly but uh when i was asking people like seven years ago like man how do we plan a church one guy just said well you're not going to be able to because you can't find elders and so god has graciously given us the four elders that started with alan and then um now with greg that, that we've been so grateful to have four elders and, and you know, we wouldn't mind having more than that uh, someday. But folks that are like-minded and that are going to be able to work together, and I would just say this publicly, the unity with these guys and the love that I have for these guys is uh, really unlike anything that I had experienced before these last six and a half years, which is just a glorious thing. I, I, you, could, you could not convince me. The Bible convinces me that the way it needs to be, but you couldn't even convince me practically that this isn't the way to go. What, Scott, what would be a difference between, because, okay, again, I'm not just trying to be critical, but I don't know how else to do this, but to compare against how this is often done wrongly, I think, if we're just being honest here, a lot of Baptist churches have a pastor, a singular pastor, and then it has a group of elders, I mean, excuse me, a group of deacons, mm-hmm. plural. And usually the deacons end up being really functional elders. They end up voting, they end up making decisions for the church, they end up leading the church. So what is, uh, which again, 100 years ago, that wasn't true of Baptists. That's happened again since uh, in the last 100 years, it's changed where they have basically one pastor and a group of deacons that function as elders. Uh, Scott, can you give a word on the difference between elders and deacons? Yeah, I mean, I think deacons, they've, what did uh, Mark Dever calls them, shock absorbers or something. They're more meeting the physical needs of the church, uh, which, which is fantastic. Like, we have two right now, Zach and Ian, and they're going to do stuff like turning on the air conditioner, setting up tables, all these things, meeting the physical needs to, to more free us up to 
Prayer and the word is the two big things. Like we're going to be teaching the word and they're going to be meeting the physical needs of, so that's, they're not going to, they, it's different function in that way. I mean, just th- a, this room set up as it is right now is due to Zach and Ian. Zach, uh, not, not Zach Wood, Zach, there's like 18 Zach. Zach <laughs> Petty, uh, Zach Petty and Ian Webster. And so like Ian, Ian came here last night and set up the computer so that we can have a recording of this. They made sure the chairs were all in place. I mean, th- and they've got lots of other stuff going on right now. And they, they were incredibly helpful in getting all this stuff taken care of. So it, it, uh, deacons serve with their hands. Elders serve with their mouths, right? We talk. Teaching is the primary emphasis of elders. Serving with the hands is is deacons. And um, the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 are almost identical as that with deacons. The only difference is elders have to be able to teach. Deacons are not required to be able to teach because teaching is not a part of the deacon ministry. Deacons are not restricted necessarily. I mean, if if, if there's a place they can teach, but there's a difference there. Uh, Elders, the teaching is mainly through uh, their... They serve through teaching and deacons through service. Yeah, I want to um, undergird that point a little more. Uh, Paul also in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, in talking about the elders that he's to appoint in Crete, says this, he says, The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to do two things, give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Um, that is a fundamental qualification for leadership in the church. Um, and again, it's, it's one of those things we're so hardwired by our culture, by our experience to think of pastor and deacons, pastor and deacons. Um, deacons are not required to be able to teach. They're just not. It's not a qualification for the office of deacon. It's not saying deacons can't teach. It's not saying if they have the gift that they're not to use it in the church. But to be a deacon is not, you don't have to be able to teach to be a deacon like you do as an elder. A deacon is um, required, as it says, to... Um, where is it at? I'm looking at it right here. Um, First Timothy three is what. Yeah, they that's ver- uh, v- verse eight. Yeah, they need to have great confidence in the faith that is in. Oh, verse nine. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So to to serve in the capacity of a deacon, you at least have to be able to understand the gospel and um, hold it with a clear conscience. Meaning you're not someone who's unstable in it. You're not really sure. Like you're not. You don't have the qualification that an elder does to be able to you know exposit scripture in that way. But you can at least tell people who Jesus is, and you can do it in a clear, articulate way. Yeah, so turn to 1 Timothy, uh, we were just in chapter 3, turn, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and while you're turning there, this is just an important point, in the New Testament, there are three words that describe the pastor. One is elder, one is overseer, and one is pastor. Pastor is actually used the least often of the three, but the word pastor, which means shepherd, someone who cares for sheep, that word is used in Ephesians chapter Four, it's also the verb of that is used a couple of times, to, to shepherd the church. So shepherds or pastors are elders, are overseers in the New Testament. And uh, they're all re- describing the same office. So elder, overseer, pastor are three words describing the same office. So we are all four pastors of the church. We are all four elders. We are all four overseers of the church. And um, often the word pastor is used to describe just one person, but it's, we're, it's, plur, it's the plurality here in, in this. So 1 uh, Timothy chapter 5, look at verse 17. Let the elders, again plural, let the elders who rule well, there's some kind of authority here, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So again, you see here elders have this position of ruling or managing or leading the church uh, in that verse. And... Um, Let's also look here down a little further. 
verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those, talking about elders here, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Uh, so clearly it says be slow to just lay hands on someone. Be slow to, to select new elders because you want to get to know someone really well before you do that. It's such an important thing. And also, elders are going to be included in leading the church. Uh, any, any comments on that? I want to make one other comment in a second, but comments on that. Lead and teach, right? Yes. Those are really our two. That's right. Le- leading the church in terms, of, uh, in terms of setting the trajectory of where we're going and also teaching. And um, let me add one other point here. When our church started, we were elder rule, which means the elders made literally like every decision ultimately of the church. And we became convinced uh, as time went by that that's not quite right. So we, we are now, we've changed. We are elder, it's going to sound like a mouthful. We are, are you ready for a mouthful? Plural, elder, led, congregational. You say, what does that mean? A plural, elder, led, congregational means that the, we have a group of elders who lead, but we don't make the final decisions on all things when it comes to our budget, when it comes to bringing on new members, when it comes to excommunicating if someone was in unrepentant sin, those are things that are done by the entire gathered church. You say, where, where do you get that from? Well, what does Jesus say in Matthew 18? Tell it to the church, right? So the, the, the church is the final court of appeal. The, the final authority is given to the entire gathered body of members. Another verse is 2 Corinthians 2, which says of someone who was removed from membership, it says the punishment inflicted by the majority is enough. In other words, the excommunication happened by majority vote of of members. And so we believe the final court of appeal under Christ is the entire gathered body when it comes to major decisions. But we don't don't vote on every single, we don't vote on how many chicken biscuits do we get on, you know, it's not like one of those things. But on the big major decisions, we we bring it to a church vote. Comments on that? I will say, um, the being slow to lay on hands, like, um, you know, obviously we didn't start coming until like almost towards the end of the first year of the church. Um, they, you know, I've, I've been to seminary, I've been a pastor, you know, I had all these credentials and qualifications, um, you know, to be an elder, but it, I mean, you guys, and I'm, I'm thankful for this. Like I really am like they, it took them a long time before they considered me to be an elder. Um, they got to know me really, really well. Um, they learned to, I mean, they, they, you know, gave me opportunities to teach, preach, do various things like that, host a discussion group at my home, but they really got to know me and my family to make sure that I actually meet the qualifications that are in First Timothy 3 um, and in Titus and, and, you know, a few other places. And so, but there is great benefit in that because there is an inherent danger in the qualifications for elders in First Timothy 3. It says clearly um, he must not be a recent convert. Um, and so what that means is even if someone is genuinely converted, they're on fire, you know, on fire for Jesus, you know, they're sharing the gospel, reading their Bible, they are not yet ready to be in a position of leadership. Leadership comes 
when your whole life can give testimony to self-control, godliness, using your time, your resources, your finances well, leading your family well. I do think you can be single and be an elder. I don't think that's yeah. a prohibition. But generally speaking, they're married with, with kids or going to have kids. Um, and so they were very slow in bringing that on. And I think that was a good thing. Um, what did, was it something I desired? Yeah. The more I got to know this church, I was like, I love this place. I want to serve as much as I can. But they were very slow to do that. And I think that was the best route to go. It is safe for the church because if someone is not mature enough, the responsibility can go to their head. They have a unique temptation from the devil to, to, to be led astray and to think, well, I'm a great speaker. So, you know, nobody can challenge me and blah. Like there's just a whole host of temptations that are avoided when someone has demonstrated over time a consistent walk and a stable walk with the Lord. So I appreciate them for that, but that's also Biblical church leadership, you don't just throw somebody in there because they're on fire. They got to prove themselves uh, over time. All right, uh, turn to your last handout. This is the statement of faith for North Avenue Church. And if you have it, go ahead and flip to the next page. Uh, we're we're going to skip over the first part for a moment here. And we're, I want to start with section two, which is statement of theological distinctives. Um, Statement of Theological Distinctives, and that really starts, I guess, on the third page with gospel-centered living. Uh, so centrality of the gospel in the, in the believer's daily life. Uh, Scott, a word about what that means? Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned this earlier before, but I, I've mentioned this Jerry Bridges before, but Jerry Bridges, if you've never read him, the, the Discipline of Grace, his book is just, the first couple of chapters is just worth the price of the book because he will talk about the centrality of the gospel. I mean, he does it in almost every book but how we desperately, we need the gospel, and we're so prone to drift away from the gospel. And the gospel keeps us humble, but also gives us power to live the Christian life. So we, again, and I mean, even he, he says that we, should, we approach God as a practicing sinner. So, like, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the way he would pray. But then he said, we, we take our sins to the cross, and we walk away with Christ's righteousness. And we, just, we need that gospel message. It's power to live the Christian life. And so we just want to regularly come back to the gospel in our own lives. And I mean, this is what we want to hear the gospel. Like, we're just so... I, there's a video with Mark Dever at the very end of it. They, they said they were talking about the gospel, and they said, well, it'd be a shame if we don't actually mention the gospel. So, Mark, could you give us the gospel in like a minute? He gives the gospel in like a minute. I've gone back to that one little minute over and over, and you can hear the guy, other guys are just like audibly being moved by the gospel because the gospel, it's all, like the cross is always fresh again. It stirs us again, and so we, we just so desperately need to have the gospel central in our, in our lives. Uh, that's, that's great. So let's move to the second part here, and the, the second point is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Uh, so we, we, again, we don't apologize for this. We, we believe strongly in these doctrines that have been controversial in church history, doctrines like unconditional election. The, the, the doctrine that God, before the foundation of the world, uh, He uh, chose, apart from anything we have done or ever would do, He chose out of fallen, sinful humanity in Adam to undeservedly rescue and save many millions and millions of people to redeem. Uh, Jerry, you did not grow up with this doctrine. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, experience oh, first yeah. about it. The first time someone t even hinted that God chose us rather than me choosing God, I just thought, and I love this man. He was uh, uh, my, he had been a huge mentor, and I wanted to say, how did you go so wrong on this one that you're so <laughs> solid and all these? Uh, I thought he was completely out to lunch because I had grown up in such a uh, a man-centered, I think truly as a believer, it was still just man-centered. And how I had missed the thousands, I think literally, passages in Scripture 
that talk about God's sovereignty and election. I'm not sure how I'd missed that. But I was probably 22 or 3 at Bible college. And after that, the Lord just opened up one page after another, one text after another that has fully convinced me that God is 100% sovereign in election. And that doesn't one bit, and I'd love to hear you guys on this, take away from human responsibility. Somehow, and I don't, I don't think anybody understands it, as high as the heavens are above the earth, God's ways are higher than our ways, and God's thoughts higher than our thoughts, certainly on this area. But human responsibility does not go out the window at all when God's sovereign in election. Yeah, to say that because God is sovereign, my actions don't matter is a false understanding of what the Bible teaches on this topic. So God uses and God works through uh, and is sovereign over human decisions, and God uses means to bring about ends. Right? He uses, I mean, just like I got here today by driving in my car. That was the means that got me here. God brought me to faith not by magic. He didn't just zap me with a lightning bolt of regeneration. Uh, God instead had me raised in a godly home. He had me exposed to the gospel many, many thousands of times in my life. And as God worked those means in my heart, eventually he regenerated my heart through those human means. So if, if, if no one ever shared the gospel with me, I would not be a Christian right now. You say, well, does that contradict sovereignty of God? No, because part of God's sovereign plan was that I hear the gospel and that that he uses the gospel to convert me. So as soon as you say, well, if God's going to save, who's going to save? I can kick my feet back up and not do anything about it. I don't have to evangelize. Well, then no, then less salvations will come about because God uses means. He prompts us to pray. He prompts us to share the gospel. He moves through us to do that. And then he makes the gospel effective, bringing about regeneration. And uh, so to to act like, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. It doesn't matter what I do is a fundamental misunderstanding of this doctrine. God works through human means that he is sovereign over, but um, we cannot minimize human responsibility and accountability. Yeah. One more thing on that. I don't think it's a 50-50 deal too. It's a hundred percent each. You know, Jesus is 100% man, 100% God, right? Truly man, truly God. In the same sort of way, we can say, well, is this a 60, 40, 70, 30 sort of deal? You know, normally that we add stuff up to 100 and say that's the way that works. Here, there, we need to be trust more in God than we ever have in his sovereignty. And we need to work and toil and struggle, like Paul would put it, more in our human responsibility to grow ourselves and to reach folks for Christ so he who began a good work will carry it on to completion. But that we definitely can't put our feet up and just say, well, I'm just kind of along here for the ride. You know, these days someone might say, let go and let God. Well, he's sovereign, but we're responsible. And it's a mystery, but it's a glorious one. I'm going to quote Spurgeon here. It's always good to quote Spurgeon if you're Baptist. Somebody <laughs> asked him, said, so how do, Mr. Spurgeon, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? And he said, I don't try to reconcile friends. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I heard MacArthur say something to this extent too. It's like so often the Bible um, in one place will talk about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, and it just presents them both as true. It's not like, well, it, you know, it means this philosophically, and it's just like, God is sovereign, man is responsible. Um, and we need to, to let the weight of that hit. Like whenever we're reading a passage and if it's stressing the sovereignty of God, we don't have to mute the sovereignty of God. Well, we don't want to, we want to make sure we don't undercut man's responsibility. We let the passage be what it is. If we're reading a passage that's stressing our responsibility and our need to respond, repent, believe, do this, do that. Don't try to mute that. Well, we don't, we don't want to undermine God's sovereignty. So let's make sure we minimize human. 
No, like the, the Bible is wonderfully consistent and we have to be comfortable as Christians. There are going to be some things that we can't fully reconcile in our minds. Like we just have to be comfortable with that. We don't dare deny what scripture teaches. Like not even slightly because it's hard. But we are limited, finite creatures. Um, and some of these things we are probing in, pushing into the, the eternal plan, the eternal decree, the mind of God himself. And we have to be very careful when we do that. Um, we, we don't want to do that haphazardly. We don't want to do that carelessly. We don't want to do that recklessly. Um, yes, God elects whom he will from the foundation of the world, apart from any works, decisions, anything we make. And yet, if I don't personally repent and believe in Jesus, I won't be saved. Right. Um, and I, we, just, we just have to get to a point to where um, we are comfortable saying God is the one that ultimately chose me and it was not because of my choosing him. And at the same time saying I still had to believe because if I didn't, I wouldn't be saved. And this is where, and I'm, I'm kind of making the same point again, but we are not fatalists. Fatalism says no matter what you do, the results are going to be the same. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is what you do actually matters. It actually changes things. You have not because you ask not. That's what James said. That means I would have had something had I asked for it, but I didn't ask it, so I didn't get it. But had I asked, I would have received. That's what the verse is saying. You have not because you asked not. In other words, your means of prayer actually affect things. They actually have results, and God works sovereignly through all that. And just to give a verse, this is a negative side of it, but uh, Luke twenty-two twenty-two about Judas, Jesus said, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, so it's predicted in the Psalms that Jesus would be betrayed, the man who breaks bread with me has lifted his heel against me. That was written a thousand years before Jesus was born about Judas. The Son of Man goes as has been determined, as sovereignty of God, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. That's human accountability. Hmm. He, Judas made a choice with his will to betray Jesus because he loved money more than Jesus. That was a, he wasn't manipulated. He wasn't a robot. He was making a real decision to prefer money over Christ. And in that, God was completely sovereign over that. God was completely sovereign. God, and I, just, I'm sorry, I don't want to get like worked up here, but, but like the, the, oftentimes people speak about God's sovereignty as if it's about his omniscience. God knows what's going to happen before it happens. That's not what the Bible's teaching. Of course, God knows the future. But how does he know it? He knows it because he's planned it. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's not just simply knowing our awareness of the future, like the way, you know, you, you, you might, you've seen a movie before and you rewatch it, you know what's going to happen. That's not what we're talking about. God's writing the script. God, God's the one directing the film. He's completely in control uh, over, over what is to come. One other thing I would just say in terms of God's sovereignty and salvation, it is a huge comfort for the believer, yeah. like oh, a massive yeah. comfort for the believer. I mean, the fact that he who began a good work is going to carry it on to completion. How amazing is that? Or Jesus says that he's got us in his hand and the Father's got us. We're double gripped. I think Steve Lawson said we're double gripped by the Son of God and God the Father. And he loved me before the foundation of the world. I mean, it's such a humbling thing. So at the end of the day, we say all glory be to Christ. He's the one who's done it. Like at the end of the day, he gets all the glory. We don't want to rob him of any glory, but what a comfort. He's got me. He's begun this work. Like if you could lose your salvation, you would. Uh, John <laughs> MacArthur said, so it's just like, what a comfort this should be for all Christians that he's, he's held us. He loves us. He's not going to let us go. We could talk about that for a yeah, moment. We need to move <laughs> on now. so good. You can get you going forever. Okay, so the next uh, distinctive of our church uh, is the complementary role of men and women. Uh, obviously, it's, it's controversial, as controversial now as it's ever been. We believe that men and women are equally made in God's image. We believe that they are equal in dignity and value and worth. 
Uh, we, we believe all that is true. And at the same time, God has not designed or made men and women to be identical or replaceable or androgynous, where you can just switch it back and forth. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. God has designed men and women to have distinct roles in the home and in the church in particular. And uh, a word about that topic, because today that is such a heated issue. What does Scripture teach about the home and the church in relationship to gender roles? Well, God made the man to be the head of the home, uh, men to lead in, in the church. And again, like because of what's going on in our culture, like, I almost get nervous saying that. Like, there's a, I have to fight against that. Um, but I mean, that's what God created before uh, sin came into the world. Um, God made Adam to keep the garden, to work the garden, to protect the garden. Um, and he said it's not good that, Ad, that the man should be alone. So he created him a helper who was fit, who complimented him. And, um, you know, so before sin entered the world, God created men and women distinct biologically uh, with very particular roles. I mean, male means one thing, female means another thing in terms of just our biology. I mean, men can't have babies. Our society tries to say we can, but they can't. Um, it's a, a biological impossibility. Any man who's had a baby is actually just a woman who's calling herself a man. I mean, let's be honest about that. Um, and so God made us very distinct biologically. But the other thing, too, when God made a helper fit for Adam, it's not like Adam's like this, you know, more and Eve, you know, is lesser. It's Adam's going to have certain strengths and abilities that God has equipped him with. Eve's going to have certain strengths and abilities that God has equip, equipped her with. Um, and that's why we complement one another. Husband, I mean, like, oh, my goodness, like being married 18 years now, it's like, um, my wife has a lot of strengths that I don't have. And like, I am thankful for that. And I have strengths that, that supplement where, where she might not be as strong. Um, and we work together. I mean, that's the way God designed it. Um, but I mean, it, it's very clear from, from the design of Genesis, even through into the New Testament, that men were created by God to be the head of the home and you know, in, in the church, um, the leaders in the church. And that's God's good design. There was a time when th that was like unquestioned. Right. Like, I mean, thankfully our culture had such a history of, you know, that biblical saturation, at least to that extent. Um, and today the reflex is now the opposite. Anytime you say it's a good thing that the man's the head of his home, it's like people just get up in arms. They get mad. You're, you know, you're, um, was it a misogynist? You're just patriarchal. Um, but men leading in the home and in the church into a large degree in society too, I mean, that's God's good design. That's his good design. That's the way he made it. And so to have a negative reaction to God's good and wise design is in and of itself a symptom that something's fundamentally wrong with us. If that doesn't look good and sound good, then we don't place judgment on that. We place judgment on ourselves. Be like, something's wrong with me if I can't affirm that and say that's beautiful. That's helpful. Yeah, I mean, again, I, what I said before is we want to submit to the Bible. It's so mm -hmm. counterculture, this idea, but we want to come to the Bible and we want to see what the Bible says. And to me, the Bible is so crystal clear on this topic. It's just the fact that we don't want it. In our own sinful nature, we don't want it. We, and we try to get around it. But if you come to the Bible and just say, I want to go under this Bible and submit. I mean, Ephesians 5, like husbands love your wives as Christ love the church. Wives submit to your husband. I mean, it's so crystal clear. And it's for our good. I remember listening to Tom Schreiner talking to a guy who was leaning more egalitarian. And the guy said to Tom Schreiner, like, why would God do this? This is almost like he, God is clearly, 
It's like he didn't like the idea. He's questioning God on this. No, we want to submit. God has said this. We want to submit. As Greg said, it's for our good. And we want to submit to the Bible. It is God's word, and we want to humbly come to it. No matter how hard it is, we want to humbly submit to it. Can I say one more quick thing on that? Because this is just something you're going to face. Because a lot of people in the church are trying to twist Scripture um, to, to support a view the Bible doesn't support. And they want to say, well, you know, gen, you know, roles between husbands and wives, you know, husbands leading and all that, that comes after the fall. That's something that's a result of sin. One, I think if you study Genesis right, you'll see that's not the case. But two, 1 Timothy chapter 2, before we get to the qualifications for elders, Paul says, um, verse 12, and there's a whole lot we could look at. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Um, rather, she's to remain quiet. He's talking about leadership in the church. And then what does he do? Verse 13, he roots it in creation before sin. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so the order in which they were created reflects the, the, the authority, uh, na- the, the nature of authority in the home and in the church. So, and again, that's before sin came in. Okay. That's before sin came in. And that's important just to remember. Jumping off that, it just kind of tie together another point. What it says there, what, what it restricts women from doing in the church is the two things, teaching and exercising authority. The very next paragraph in First Timothy is the qualifications for an elder. What are the two distinct things an elder does? Teach, remember, deacons don't teach. Elders teach and what? They exercise authority. Let the elders who rule well be worthy. So teaching and exercising authority are the two distinct roles of an elder pastor overseer. And those are the two distinct things Paul says women should not do. It's the clearest way he could possibly say women should not be pastors. It's like, and this isn't God holding out something good any more than God saying men cannot uh, bear children. It's not, it's, God's not holding out. He's given unique gifts to both genders that other, the other gender does not have or cannot possess or is not supposed to possess. And those are good gifts for God in, in those two areas. But I think the, the clarity of this is overwhelmingly strong. Um, and uh, we, we don't want to be ashamed, like you're saying. We, mm. want to, we want to be glorying in how God has made us as men and women, not embarrassed by it. And we wouldn't say that women can't teach other women. No. Because they're to train the older women, train the younger women. Yes. We have plenty of great examples of that, but they can't be an authority over a man. Yeah, great, great point. So, so Timothy's mother and grandmother trained him in Scripture as a boy, and Paul compliments them for that. Second Timothy 1 and chapter 3, uh, women are commanded to teach younger women in Titus 2. Older women teach younger women to love their children, their husbands, etc. And then uh, in Acts 18, uh, what's their names? Aquila and Priscilla. They, they take Apollos, a young pastor, a man, aside, and in a loving, humble way, they correct his teaching because he didn't have an accurate understanding. And he receives correction from both a man and a woman in a private context, and he changes and repents, and he preaches more accurately. So in those ways, uh, God blesses those kinds of things. But the idea of, of uh, I'm I mentioning this because there's well-known female teachers who normally teach women, but in recent years, have, uh, I mean, Amy Bird is one who's, who was coming from, used to come from more of a reform perspective. She's now become egalitarian, and just recently she preached to a large church for a 50-minute sermon. She did, the, she did the benediction at the end. I mean, she, she preached and led the service as a woman, and that's becoming more popular. Uh, Beth Moore is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. On Mother's Day, she'll preach in a megachurch in the Southern Baptist world, and she'll, she'll preach a 50-minute sermon walking through the text of Scripture. If that's not disobedience to 1 Timothy 2, I don't know what it means to disobey 1 Timothy 2. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's what those women are directly disobeying. So it's, I think it's becoming so prominent amongst well-known people mm-hmm. that we want to be extra clear on this uh, today. And she wrote a book, and she didn't even address this 
text, right, in the, in the she book. Wrote she wrote a book about gender roles, disagreeing with what we're teaching right now, and she never dealt with 1 Timothy 2 in the whole book. Well, I'm like, wait, that's kind of the, that's kind of the big one. <laughs> you didn't even, it's not even in a footnote. Like, apparently, I haven't read the whole book, but people who read it, so she never addressed that text, which is kind of an oversight there. Okay, uh, moving now to believer's baptism by immersion. Uh, Greg, a word about the importance of that. Yeah, I'm just going to read this and then make a few comments. Baptism is intended only for those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and can give sufficient testimony to the basics of Christian beliefs. We baptize by immersion because it's the original meaning of the word, and it best symbolizes the reality to which baptism points, our death and resurrection in Christ. So when we say believer's baptism by immersion, we're really saying believer's immersion by immersion. Um, we use baptism as the transliterated word from, from the Greek, which is baptizo, um, but yeah, baptism is an outward sign of what's taken place in us and our response to Jesus. Um, and so we place our faith in Jesus. You know, the Bible talks about we're buried with him, you know, in his death, raised with him to walk in newness of life. That's like what happens when we believe. Um, and so what is bapti baptism picture? Immersion into Jesus with his death, coming out of the grave uh, to walk with him in a new life. Um, and so baptism pictures conversion. And the reason why we say believers baptism is because it's for people who actually can express faith in Jesus. The Presbyterians, um, it's a long complicated argument, um, but it ultimately doesn't, it doesn't line up with what scripture says. They say, well, carrying over from the Old Testament, you know, the children of the Israelites, they received the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. Now in the new covenant, the sign of the covenant is baptism. And so, yes, if you're a new believer, you should be baptized. But if you're a believer, you should give that covenant sign to your children as well. But when you understand what baptism actually is, and when you understand what the new covenant actually is, the new covenant deals with regeneration, with a new heart. And so the sign of that new covenant is baptism. And if the new covenant is pointing to a change life and a new heart, then you can only give that sign to people who have a changed life and a new heart. Um, you can't give it to anyone else. It's illegitimate um, at that point. The, the next one here is the relationship of God's glory to man's joy, which is kind of a John Piper distinctive here. Scott, can you give a brief uh, sense of what this is talking about? Yeah, I mean, uh, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. I think God's glory and our joy are not, like, not against each other, but it's like... Like, I think, Greg, you mentioned last time we did this, like, Jesus is the fountain of living waters. Like, this is where joy is to be had. We come to the fountain of living waters, and we're satisfied in, in Christ, and we want other people to come and, and be satisfied. And this is how we honor God. Like, to do our, uh, to obey out of duty, like, it's not honoring to God. Oh, no, this is my duty, which the illustration you've used is, like, Piper coming with the flowers. Is, the, is their 50th anniversary or whatever. He's got 50 flowers. He knocks on the door. He said he never knocks on the door. And then his wife, Noel, opens it up and says... And he pulls out the flowers and says, you know, happy anniversary. And, he, and she, or he, she, she says, what, Johnny, what are you, why are you here? Thank you for doing this. He said, oh, it's my duty. Uh, uh, you can explain this story better than, than I do. And then she would not be honored at all. If he just said, it's my duty. I want to take you out because it's my duty as a husband. So he said, rewind the tape, hold the, the, the 50 roses, knock on the door again. She said, Johnny, what are you doing? He said, happy anniversary. And he said, like, nothing would make me happier than to spend this night with you. And he said, she would never say, why are you always thinking about, about you? Like, you're, you're so selfish. No, like, that is honoring to Noel. To, nothing would make me happy to spend time with you. And that's the, the way with God. Like, nothing would make me happy to spend time with the Lord. Like, we're honoring God by that. So these are not against each other. No, it's, it's a beautiful thing when, when, when you see this. Yeah, if, if someone says to you, someone you respect or whoever says to you, nothing makes me happier than to spend time with you. They're talking about their own happiness. 
which could sound selfish. Nothing makes me happier than to spend time with you. But they're actually, you know that they're honoring you when they say that, right? I mean, when someone says, it gives me great joy to be around you, they're not so much talking about selfish joy. They're talking about how great you are, how honorable you are, how enjoyable you are. And similarly, God's given us the ability to honor and give glory by delighting Him. And when we say to God, everything else I've tried in the world left me empty and frustrated and dissatisfied, but you alone have given me great joy and satisfaction, you are drawing great honor and glory to God. Uh, and so God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Let me also mention something while, uh, we, uh, while we're on these distinctives. It's not written down here on the sheet, but I think it's worth mentioning, which is about the role of the Holy Spirit. We 100% believe in the active role of the Holy Spirit in our life. There's no Christian life without the Holy Spirit. Uh, we live by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit, and we need the Spirit to fight our sin. But uh, when it comes to the supernatural sign gifts of the Spirit, the speech gifts, Greg, a word about what we believe about the speech gifts like prophecy and tongues. Yeah, um, we would be, as it's often classified, called cessationists, meaning um, some of the gifts like that, prophecy, tongues, even, you know, interpretation, gift, of, interpretation tongues. of tongues, healing, miracles, that was relegated to the apostolic age, that first Christian generation. Um, because you have to keep in mind, Jesus told uh, the disciples, specifically the 12 who had become apostles, that when the Holy Spirit came, he was going to bring to their mind, you know, the remembrance of all that he taught and other things as well in the future. Um, and that, you know, they, they were going to be the ones who were going to build the church. And so when God, and you follow this in scripture, when, the, when there's an outbreak of prophetic activity, when people are speaking as, you know, in a prophetic way, proclaiming the truth of God, you think of Moses, you think of Elijah, Think of the early church. It's usually accompanied by signs to confirm um, what's going on. And so it says that in the book of Acts, like the, the miracles and stuff that was happening was confirming the gospel they were teaching. Um, but again, Ephesians talks about the apostles, talks about um, you know, their teaching and, and what they gave the church uh, as they were the foundation. Okay, And when a foundation is laid, you don't keep putting another foundation. Like the foundation is a one-time thing. Everything builds on top of that. And so when the, the generation of the apostles died out, um, they left us with their teaching, which is what we have here. Um, and so all the, the, the tongues, the prophecy and all of that, that accompanied the giving of this book, the New Testament. As they taught and then stuff, letters were written and things were disseminated. Um, the apostolic teaching is what we have in our New Testaments. Um, and since they are a foundation, once that foundation is laid, all that you do when you build a foundation, you don't do that anymore. You build on the foundation. Um, and so we do not believe nor practice nor expect the, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, the gift of interpretation of tongues, the gift of healing or miracles and stuff like that, because that was unique to the time of the apostles. We believe those gifts have ceased because they were part of the building of the foundation. Yeah, just jump it in there. And we're not saying we don't think God ever does miracles today. Right. That, that's a, can you distinguish the gift yes. of miracles from... A, because New Testament talks about people have the gift of tongues, individuals, the gift of interpretation, the gift of healing, meaning God gifted me, like I have a spiritual gift that I, I can go and heal people who are sick, or I can do miracles and, you know, stuff like that. Um, the, the individual gifts of, of, of people has stopped. 
But can God still raise the dead? Can he still heal the sick? Yes, he can. And it's not uh, wrong to pray for those no, things. And we, it's, we will it's at times pray for wrong. those kinds of things, miraculous yeah. healing. If someone has cancer, we've prayed over people for, for God's healing. No, no problem whatsoever doing that. But there's, there's no guarantee that there's going to be a healing. We don't right. have the power to sort of zap someone with this spiritual gift yes. of healing, which is what the apostles' shadows could heal people. I mean, crazy stuff was happening in the early church. Uh, that we don't expect today. Yeah, and because also when we talked about this a while back, it's it's somewhere in the 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 realm of all our Sunday school lessons. Um, right. We talked about tongues and prophecy and all of that, yeah. and how you know prophecy it's it's literally speaking direct speech from God. You know, you're speaking the word of God. It's infallible. It's inerrant. Um, and so God's not giving that kind of speech anymore. The only infallible, inerrant speech we have is what's written down here. So maybe, maybe the closest we'd come, if you want to, to speak prophetically, is when you read the Bible. Like you actually read the words of Scripture. Um, that's, that's the only sure word that's infallible, without error, that we know absolutely 100% is from God. Everything else is suspect in, in that way. And so, again, God's not giving more Scripture. Because if prophecy were still ongoing, then we should expect the Scriptures to be added to. Okay? Because when God speaks infallibly, we need, we need that. Um, God's not giving more of that. It has ceased with the generation of the apostles. Yeah, the, if, if you're understanding that, the, the, once we have... We call this the sufficiency of Scripture, that it's all we need for life and godliness. Once we have all the 66 books of the Bible, there is no longer a need for God to give us fresh, special revelation from heaven. And if He did, it would be equal in authority to the Bible, which would cause all kinds of confusion and problems because now the Bible's not enough. Now I've got a fresh, infallible word from God, a new prophecy He just gave to me. And so we, we want to be very careful. And we, we've got, again, if you go back maybe a year or so on, yeah. on our YouTube channel, our podcast, we have a number of weeks of teaching. I think on, we have, what, three weeks? Two yeah, or three a, weeks a number on of that, prophecy and yeah. tongues. We explain uh, a little bit more fully. Our Mark, while you're on that, could you explain why even the sufficiency of Scripture of how we would want to counsel somebody, like kind of the opposed from uh, biblical counseling yeah. from what today is kind of casually called Christian counseling? Yes. Yeah. So, this is controversial as well, but, but that's why these are distinctives. Uh, there, there is a tendency among some Christians who I think are no doubt genuine Christians in many cases and, and you know, love the Lord and are sincere, but when, when it comes to counseling, there, there's a danger that a, Christ, a genuine Christian counselor could be reading their Bible, but also be deeply immersed in more secular counseling models and ideas. And they could actually begin to counsel in a way, to just to kind of put it bluntly, is you adopt basically a secular counseling perspective, but you put some Bible verses around it. So the framework is basically what non-Christians have discovered through testing and through observation and pragmatism and what seems to work with marriages or whatever. And we, we basically have our whole framework comes from the world. And then we just put a few Proverbs and a few quotes from Jesus around our material, and we call it Christian counseling. Well, I mean, I don't mean to be overly you know, disparaging about this, but we've seen this happen a lot where... 90% of the counsel that's given is not found in the Bible. It's secular stuff that's kind of been repackaged and relabeled. And, uh, and, and oftentimes the, the advice or counsel is not helpful. And so we, we want to be biblical counseling is different. Biblical counseling, the whole framework is coming assuming the Bible is sufficient. It, it, it is a whole framework coming from a biblical perspective and worldview. It's giving biblical categories. So like, just to give an example, it doesn't say something like, well, you know, alcoholism is a disease, and you're the victim of a disease. It's not really a sin problem. It's really a disease problem, and you're just a victim of a disease. 
That's not biblical terminology. That's secular counseling. Biblical would say, every time I choose to get drunk, I am choosing by my will to do something that is wrong. So I have a sin problem. I'm not saying there's no genetic issue at all here. There, there could be a, a tendency towards that sin more than another person through genetics. That's fine. But you, you'd say, no, when I get drunk, that's a sin problem. It's, I'm not a victim of a disease. I'm choosing to sin. I'm medicating my bad feelings with the wrong thing. I'm not going to God. I'm going to the drink here to, to give me that relief. And when I choose to participate in that addictive behavior, I am sinning. So what's the answer? It's a repentant sin issue. I've got an idol. I'm looking to this drink to do what only Jesus can do, and I need to repent of that sin, replace it with Jesus, and find my full satisfaction in Him. When I'm lonely and isolated and discouraged, I don't go to this sin. I go now to Jesus to find refreshment. And so that's biblical counseling. Do you see how different that is from the, the other side? So that, that's an issue there where sufficiency of Scripture shows up in a, in a big way. And you said all, we have all we need for life and godliness through the Lord Jesus and His Word. And we believe that I don't need my Bible and my counselor. I don't need my Bible and whatever it is, I need my Bible. And that through that, and I'm not saying I don't need counsel from others. I just need counsel that godly people will give me through Scripture. We have been thoroughly equipped for every good work, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Second uh, Timothy 3.17. So we trust that God's word, and it's through God's word, is what thoroughly equips us for every good work. I, I want to read that quote from MacArthur that I sent you. Yeah, they're really Let good. Let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, they're really good. Okay, L this is what John MacArthur said about the counseling situation. I thought this was interesting. He said, one best-selling book claims that Christian counselors who believe the Bible is a sufficient guide for counseling are frequently guilty of, quote, a non-thinking and simplistic understanding of life and its problems. Because so much of it comes back to sin and repentance, right? That sounds too simplistic and silly. And so then, then MacArthur says, thus those who attempt to limit their counsel to the questions Scripture answers are disdained as naive superficial, and altogether inadequate counselors. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think that's incorrect. I mean, that's a wrong idea, but I think that is, that is, there's a lot of truth to how people will perceive biblical counseling. The reason like we bring it up is that, once again, that's not popular today to right. hold just to biblical counseling generally, even in the Christian world. And so when we, you know, as elders and as we try to, you know, by God's grace, train people in this, the, the approach we're going to take is, like they were saying, um, we're going we're gonna to see how sin is impacting this because only the Bible gives us what we need to deal with sin. But here's the thing. Two, there's two, two ways this works usually. Um, when someone is struggling with something, an addiction, whatever it is, either it's, they're struggling with that primarily because um, of their own sinful choices or secondly, because someone else did something sinful to them and they have responded in a sinful way to the sin against them. Okay, even people who have had extremely horrible things done to them by adult, you know, you just think of what adults do to kids sometimes, various things that are just unspeakably horrific, um, like that is sin against a person. But when others sin against us, we respond in different ways to what that sin has done. And the majority of the time, if we're not so saturated in scripture and i'm not saying this is easy okay the, the 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 more perverse or awful stuff is it's hard to emotionally whatever but we tend to respond in a way that's not healthy 
Um, and so in a counseling process, we will do our best to figure out, you know, what, what is the sin at root of this? Either your own sin or somebody else's sin against you first. But then if somebody else has sinned against you, the, the primary focus of that counseling is going to be helping you learn to respond to that sin in a appro biblically appropriate way. Mm -hmm. Because we are so prone to respond bad. You know, we talk about defense mechanisms and all of that. The behaviors that people struggle with because of stuff that's been done to them in their past usually are not helpful, healthy, or biblical. And so we've got to, to kind of undo the bad methodology that we've used to, to respond to something bad against us and then say, okay, how do I need to think about this biblically? How do I respond biblically when I'm, you know, what I'm dealing with is because someone else did something to me. Like we've got to make sure, okay, how does the scripture guide me to respond appropriately in terms of how I think, in terms of how I feel, in terms of my reflexes. And sometimes like that's a process that can take a really long time, depending on how long you've been stuck in something, developing new reflexes and new ways of responding it's hard. It's really, really hard, but it does also stress our responsibility in that matter. Like just because we've been sinned against does not relieve us of our responsibility to respond in a godly way to that sin. Okay, we're almost out of time for this part. Uh, Greg, can I, can I give you a... Oh yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. For the theological distinctives thing, could you just talk about how you don't necessarily have to line up with us exactly? Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a great point. So for, for the distinctives, for instance, let me just find them here so I don't misquote this. You could, um, you could disagree with us about, like, you may say, I don't, I don't believe in unconditional election. Well, that doesn't mean you can't be a member of our church, obviously. You just have to know that's what's going to be taught. Uh, and, and with the complementary roles of men and women, you're probably not going to be happy with our church if you don't believe that, but you don't necessarily have to believe that to be a member, although if, if you don't, we would certainly want to know about that and talk about that. Um, the, I, uh, the, the cessationism. Uh, you don't have to be a cessationist to be a member of our church, but we're not going to practice or have a place for prophecy in a church service or mm -hmm. a tongue speaking in the church service. We're not going to have a place for that, but we're not going to demand that you believe exactly as we do on that issue. Yeah. You just have to know we're not going to function as a continuationist church. We're going to function as a cessationist church, and that's what's going to be taught. So th again, th those are, that's why we call them distinctives, and some of these things you don't have to see completely eye to eye on. You just have to know what's going to come from the teaching side of it. And we, in the last minute we have here... I think I did this to you last time, Greg. Can you, uh, the Trinity, obviously you could spend many, many weeks on this. Can you give us a 90-second uh, explanation of the Trinity? Uh, I think this will be not very controversial, hopefully, but uh, what is the Trinity? Okay. Uh, <laughs> wow. I uh, so appreciate that, Mark. Um, the Trinity is… The clock is ticking, Greg. It is ticking, isn't it? Um, so the Trinity is not, the, the term Trinity is not one we, we find explicitly in Scripture, but it's a term we use as our best attempt to describe what the Bible reveals to us about the nature of God. Um, obviously, the Bible teaches there is one God and only one God, but we come into the New Testament and we start to read John 1, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing that was made was made, that kind of stuff. So, okay, there's one God, um, but now we're saying there's this Word who is also God. He's with God. He's personal. Uh, he's distinct, but He's still God. Uh, and the Bible clearly teaches there's one God. And so the Bible, God through the Bible, reveals Himself to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, God's not divided up into parts as though the Father's part God, the Son's a third, and the Spirit. It's the Father is 100% God, the Son is 100% God, the Spirit is 100% God, and yet there's one 
God. Okay, the Trinity, um, I'm going to quote somebody that I don't quote often, but Adrian Rogers, the, the great uh, Southern Baptist pastor of, of a previous generation said, you know, if you try to fully understand the Trinity, you might lose your mind, but if you deny it, you'll definitely lose your soul. Um, the Trinity and understanding God as three divine persons in one divine nature, one God, it is absolutely essential to understanding who God is. It's absolutely essential to understanding the gospel, believe it or not, because if someone denies the Trinity, they end up getting Jesus wrong. They end up getting uh, parts of salvation wrong and all that kind of stuff. And I wish I had time to go into all the reasons why that is. But God is three in one. He is one God eternally existing in three divine persons, um, and, you know, again, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is truly and fully God. We worship each as, as God. But the important point of distinction, for our salvation, it wasn't the Father, it wasn't the Spirit, it was the Son, the second person who took on flesh um, to live for us and die for us and bring us back. That, that's very helpful. And let me just say what we are denying in the last minute here. Uh, if, if someone comes, say, from a Jehovah's Witness or Mormon background, and they want to join our church, and they believe Jesus, they still believe their theology that Jesus was a first created being. Mm -hmm. He's the greatest created being, but he's not eternal. He's been created. There was a point at which Jesus did not exist. He has been created. If that's what someone believes, they cannot join our church until, until, they, until they turn and trust that Christ is eternal. He's, he, is, he, is equally, uh, he is equal with the Father. And another thing would be something called modalism, which in apostolic, certain places of apostolic churches, they believe something called modalism, which says that the Father is the Son and is the Spirit. There's one person. And the idea is that the one person of the Father created the world. At Christmas, the Father became the Son in the incarnation, and then Jesus went back to heaven and then became the Spirit and fell on Pentecost. So you have one person playing three parts. Like, I'm a, I'm a father, a husband, and a teacher. I'm one person playing three different roles. If you believe that's what God is, that's a heresy that's been condemned for almost 1,800 years in church history. So we, we don't believe the Father is the Son, is the Spirit. We believe these are three distinct persons. The Father did not die on the cross. The Son did not die on the cross. Right. Uh, th th these are distinct the persons. What did I say? You said the Son. Ooh. Yeah, it's okay. Wow. Okay, I just said a heresy. <laughs> Erase it from the record. Uh, the, the Father did not die on the Son, did not die on the cross. The Spirit did not die on the cross. The Son died on the cross. I can't believe I said that wrong, the wrong way. And so, yeah, just as I state heresy right now, right? Uh, don't believe that. Uh, so, yeah, th that's very important because uh, modalism is also a denial of the Trinity. And uh, th those, are, those are still around today. I, I, you know, I had a student at my school who comes from a church, and her answer to one of my questions was, I don't believe in the Trinity. I about fell out of my chair uh, because, you know, you have to be, a, you know, she, she was affirming her own church's belief. That's, what, that's why I almost fell. I, you know, there's, we have students who don't even believe in Christ. Occasionally, you have an atheist student at a Christian school. But this was a student who said, I'm a Christian. I, my, according to my church's teaching, we don't believe in the Trinity. That was her answer on a quiz. I almost fell over. Uh, that's amazing to me because you don't go to a true church if they deny the Trinity. That, that, that's a, a, a sad reality. Any closing thoughts? All right, let, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll spend a few minutes at the two tables here, and uh, we'll just take a moment, and we'll share each other's uh, testimony just briefly, and then uh, we'll be done before too long. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, it, it is just a good to be reminded of what Your Word teaches and, and these important issues that we've been able to walk through for these last couple of hours. 
Thank you for uh, the ability to do that, and thank you for the people who are here today. And I do pray that right now as we speak to each other and share a little bit about what you've done in our life to bring us to faith, that we would be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll take just a couple-minute break, and then we'll, we'll spend a few minutes at the tables.